Let me, um, let me start with a, a thought experiment. So I want you to try to imagine this for a second and then tell me what you would do. So, and this has to do, I'm going somewhere with this. So uh, par- partly this is just in general, when we come to the Bible, to a text like this, an interaction, an encounter with Jesus. We're encountering his words, his spirit, his heart, his intention for us and for people who read him and listen to his voice for two millennium. What happens to us? So here, just try this on. If you were to spend some time in the presence of Jesus, have you ever thought about this? Jesus shows up, he's a person, he's in physical form, and he like knocks on your door, and you're getting ready for work or something like that, and it's Jesus. He's at your front door. You with me? It's Jesus. And you know it's Jesus. Don't worry about doubt or anything like that. How could it be? Just, you know it's Jesus, okay? You're sure. Whoa. Did not expect this today. Here he is, Jesus. You got me? You with it so far? How do you feel? Like, just generally, what is your feeling? Nervous? Whoa? Did someone just say whoa? Okay. Well? Unwell? Overwhelmed. I like unwell. <laughs> I suddenly feel sick to my stomach. Okay, so, so try, to, try to just, I mean, really try for a second to imagine what you would feel in that moment. All right? And I, and I want to now, I want to narrow it down to two options for you, Okay? I'm going to ask you, do you think fundamentally you would feel option A or option B? Okay, listen. So, so first option, fundamentally, do you think you would feel, and you've got, to, you've got to spend some time with him now. You're going to spend the day with Jesus, okay? He's going to go with you about your business. Or even that's up for, up for grabs, you know, like some stuff you were thinking about doing, maybe you don't want to do anymore, or maybe you're thinking, maybe we don't do this. Let's just go for a walk in the park and hold hands or something. I don't know. Maybe you have an entirely different plan. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with holding hands with Jesus, guys. Come on, just (laughs) calm down. Um, Do you fundamentally feel nervous about saying or doing the wrong thing? Do you suddenly feel self-conscious? In other words, um, do you think you'd fundamentally become massively aware of his holiness, his perfection? And suddenly feel self-conscious about your thoughts, about what you say, about the phrases you use, about the colorful language you use. Would you, suddenly, would, you, would you feel somewhat restricted because of his holiness? Watching what you say, even, even worrying about what you're thinking, wondering if he's reading your mind. Would you become, do you think, fundamentally more aware of your own sinfulness and self-conscious? And then, therefore, clean yourself up a little bit. Uh, some people, sometimes when people uh, think or find out that I'm in ministry or something, they think I'm a pastor, they say, oh, they, they try to stop cussing around me or something. Oh, sorry. Oh, F, I, I effing blew it. Oh, my. Oh, sorry. And, and the, yes, that kind, of, that kind of tension. Clean yourself up a little. That's option one, okay? Or option two, do you think fundamentally you would feel the exact opposite? Would you feel suddenly free? Would you loosen up? 
So instead of tightening up, cleaning up, a little self-conscious, would you instead feel totally free? After all, this is the person who knows you best. This is the person who's already seen every dirty thought you've ever had and actually already been present every single time you did something. And there he is, and he's smiling at you. Would you suddenly feel this burst of liberation and freedom and, and say everything that comes to your mind and, and feel totally, utterly uh, alive and free and, and not worry at all about what you're going to say or, or what you're thinking, because after all, you can finally be yourself around this person. I want, you to, I want you to pick one of those two things. Fundamentally, would you be one or the other? More one or the other. And tell somebody. Just turn to somebody and tell them what, you're, what you think you would be in that situation. Okay. All you had to say was option one or option two, but you're just talking. I don't know what you're saying to each other. And by the way, don't be annoying and say both. You, you wouldn't be both. You couldn't be both. The answer is not both. Fundamentally, which would you be? I want to know just by a survey here, who, who thinks probably I would, I would be more option one. I'd be more like... Holiness, self-conscious, oh God, watch it. Okay, option two, free, just like, let's go, Jesus, you know, let's, you know, and okay, good, cool. But that's pretty evenly split, that's interesting. Um, <clears throat> okay, here's the thing. Whatever your answer, it reveals your basic disposition toward God your foundational understanding of who he is and who you're supposed to be in light of that. If you see God essentially as holy and powerful, as expecting holiness from you in return, then you probably would feel the first. If you see God as primarily loving and accepting, as only wanting really to love and nurture you, then you would feel the second. Here's the thing. Whichever one you chose, whichever way you prefer to see God, you're wrong. So the cool thing is that everyone in the room is wrong. <laughs> we share that in common. Whatever your primary disposition is toward him, and you need to hear me say this this morning, you have him wrong. You have him wrong. This is what I mean. Whatever you think God is, He is more. He is more. And that's always what Jesus is doing with His audience. It's always what He's doing with us. Not even necessarily contradicting. Sometimes He does that. But not even necessarily contradicting our view or our perception of God, but expanding it. Changing it completely and fundamentally by making it bigger, by making it more. In other words, Jesus is not always interested in denying something as much as he is expanding our view and our understanding of reality. We know greed is bad. You already knew that. When you walked in, you knew that. If we surveyed every single person as you came in, is greed good or bad? 
three of you would have said it's good just because you're trying to be funny or something. But, the, but we all would have said it's bad. You understand that. We know it doesn't please God. But still it persists inside of us. It's our naughty little secret. It's, or in some cases, it's an open flaw that we choose not to address. This is certainly true in the Western American church. And in some cases, in the worst cases, it's something that we embrace, that we flaunt. It's, a ki- it's actually a kind of theology, greedy theology. But I don't think, this is, this is where we need to kind of, I don't know, come at this text a little different. I don't think Jesus is saying, if you're greedy, God is mad at you. I don't think that's his point here. Um, there's something else going on. I think we all know that greed at its core is sin. But this piece of scripture is really amazing to me because I don't think the text is so much about greed as it is about loneliness. I think this is a text about loneliness. And therefore, when I read it, I see it as a text that's expressing the compassion, love, and concern of Jesus for his listener. Beware of greed, he says. Not harshly, but it's a pleading. A pleading. I think that's what Jesus wants to say to you today and to me. I think he wants to plead with you and me today. Why does he say, watch out? Why does he say, beware of greed? Why? Because if you try to fill your life with money or prestige or power or possessions or position, you're going to end up, listen to me, you're going to end up dying alone. That's where that ends. You die alone. I think as much as this text is about anything, it is about isolation. As I've spent like a week just thinking about and and marinating in this text, every single line in it for me is about isolation. Just follow me for a second. The brothers, the two brothers. It starts, the text starts with with this disgruntled younger brother. And if you understand, by the way, Good thing this doesn't happen anymore, right? People don't argue about inheritances anymore. I mean, if you've ever had someone die in the family, there's always issues with who gets what. And if somebody dies without a clear will, it is a mess. It is almost always a mess. Now, in this time and culture, you know, the, the, the older brother would have been given, in one sense, the rights of the father. And yes, the younger brother would have been due a certain portion of the inheritance, but there's all kinds of reasons why the older brother might have held it back. Maybe the younger brother is a, is a loser. Maybe the younger brother has a drug addiction. Maybe the younger brother just wants to actually work against the family's interests with that money. Maybe the older brother has an idea of how he's going to use the money and how he's going to use the inheritance to keep the family farm going or to, or to do something that's going to bless every single portion of the family, not just the younger brother who wants to run off with his bit. Maybe the older brother has a point. Maybe the older brother is actually doing the right and just thing. I'm sure he has an argument to make. Maybe he's even there. And it's not like this guy wants what's right or fair. He wants what's his. He doesn't ask Jesus to be arbiter between them. He says, give me what's mine. Tell my brother to give me what's mine. So first of all, don't ever come at Jesus like that. Don't don't come into your prayers 
with Jesus, give me this. You better, you better tell so-and-so to give me this. His response will always be the same kind of response. Who, who told you that's my job? I'm sorry. Who, he, this is sarcastic Jesus. He's looking around going, oh, I'm sorry. Did, 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 was this my job that I was supposed to somehow get you your money and your little dispute with your brother? Who told you that? Who told you that's what I do? That's not what I do. I don't work for you. <laughs> but what fundamentally is going on? What starts the story? It's a family division. It's brokenness between brothers who instead of loving each other and taking the father's inher- their father's inheritance and doing something that would honor their father, they're doing something that probably makes their father turn over in his grave. They're at each other's throats. They hate each other. They become enemies, these brothers. They're alone. They're alone. This is the tragedy that starts this text. A tragedy of family division. Their father is dead and now they're at each other's throats for what? For money? For money. The desire for it has become the death of their brotherhood. The farmer, the story that he tells, what is so unbelievably remarkable in what would have been both an honor culture and a communal corporate culture is, is the self-talk of this farmer. The thing, that, the thing that, that's so shocking about this and would have been even more shocking to a first century Palestinian audience is, is, is the self-talk of the farmer. There are, there are 54 words in the original language in this little parable. Of, of those 54, 18, 18 out of 54 words are personal pronouns. I, me, my. Which is shocking, shocking in a culture and in a community where everyone thinks us, we. And here is this guy going, I had a huge harvest. I have my barns. Those are my barns. This is my storehouses. These are my goods. And what's so shocking and ugly about the farmer is that he is alone in his self-absorption, totally isolated by it. He does not talk to anyone but himself. He doesn't, he doesn't think, wow, uh, we, the land. By the way, he doesn't produce this. This is classic entitlement. People who feel entitled to a thing, think they possess something, don't realize that every single thing they have has been given to them. White people. Uh, you know, you, you, this is a separate, separate talk. This is a very white problem. I see this farmer as a white person. I don't know why. That's not right. Prejudice, prejudicial against the farmer, but <clears throat> it's mine. It's mine. I earned it. No, you didn't. The land gave it to you. And yet he thinks it's his. And then he does not talk to his wife. He does not talk to his sons. He does not talk to his community. He doesn't ask anyone, what should we do with this bounty? He's alone. He's alone. In a, in a time and a place where you would have had these peasant farmers, we're talking about subsistence farming. So, so the majority of the people around him who work his land, who gathered the harvest, 
would have been people that earned their living by working and taking just enough to live on. That's subsistence farming. And what would a little extra do for them? It could change their life. All of a sudden, they don't have to just keep working to get that day's food, but they actually could put aside a little something and maybe build something with their lives. It could change everything about their lives. But he doesn't think about them either. He doesn't think about his workers. He doesn't think about uh, uh, the poor around him. He doesn't think that this bounty could bless or have anything to do with anyone but himself. He's totally alone. This is what the passage is about. He's alone. He is the tragic figure. And in the most shocking turn, the story ends, he dies. And he finds out that he does not have God either. He is utterly and eternally alone. And it's a cautionary tale of sanity and love. It's a tale Jesus wants to tell because he loves his listeners. It's a gentle story. It's a loving, it's a compassionate story. It's a pleading story. As if to say, don't you see this could happen to you? It's just a story though. If I, if I watch a movie with Monica, which is hard, to begin with, because she's, she's one of these people that won't not talk at any point, ever. And one of the things Monica really hates, clearly, uh, and I'm sure you can understand, is when some, one of the main characters commits adultery. This is like, she just throws things and loses it, and whatever it does, it doesn't matter if somebody in the story commits adultery. She's up and kicking things, and why? And I don't want to watch this anymore, and she leaves, and I think, well, at least it'll be quieter from here on out. But, <laughs> but then she comes back in, still mad, still frustrated. And I always have to tell her, I always say the same thing, honey, these aren't real people. No one committed adultery. It didn't happen. It's a story. It's a story of someone committing adultery. But you don't have to get this worked up. Nobody actually did this. And that's, that's, that's part of the compassion is this is just a story. It could be you, but it doesn't have to be you. The story allows you to see what could happen if you let your life consist of the abundance of possessions. If you let grieve, uh, greed weave its uh, tangled uh, tentacles into the motivation of your heart. If you do that, this, is, this could be your story. But it doesn't have to be. It's a loving story. It's not harsh, actually, at all. Jesus is capable of being harsh. If he wanted to be harsh, he would just tell the guy who's being greedy in front of him, you're going to die friendless and godless. He's capable of that. But he's turning to the audience and saying, this is what I want you, need you to hear for God's sake, for the poor's sake, for your own soul's sake. Do not pursue money and possessions as a goal for your life. Don't do it. And I'm, and I'm saying that to you this morning. I'm pleading. He is pleading, and I am pleading in his name with you. Please, please, for the love of God, for the love of the poor, for the love of your own soul, do not pursue money and possessions with your life. 
Decide today, if you have not already, decide today that that will never be a motivation for you. Just kill it once and for all. Because, by the way, it will not satisfy you. Jesus said, what, what profits a person if they gain the whole world but forfeit their soul? I mean, Ecclesi- what was Ecclesiastes 5? Solomon says, you know, the, he who loves money will not be satisfied by money. What a thing to say. <laughs> he who loves money will never be satisfied by money. It's just one of these things that may, leaves you empty. It just pokes holes in the bottom of your life, and it always leaks out. It's never enough. Jesus, actually, this word life, which is really important. He says, your life, your life. And this word life is so important. Your life, Jesus says, does not consist in the abundance of possessions. In another place, he said, I have come that you might have life abundantly, in abundance, to the full. So to understand that, which I think is actually important here to get where we need to go this morning, to understand life, the concept of life as something that gets filled, your life as something that can either be empty or full, and it can be filled with something meaningful or something that isn't meaningful. To to understand that concept, let's look at Jesus, Aristotle, and neuroscience. Those will be our three quick journeys uh, that we'll take this morning. Let's start with Jesus. First, he says, life does not consist. This is important. In fact, the one line in this text that has just stuck with me every single time I think of it, every single time I read it, is this one line. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. This is not a moral statement. Stay with me. He's not teaching something moral. He's not He's not being theological. He's being metaphysical. He's, 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 this is your science teacher talking. This is not, this is not uh, uh, po- political. This is not an opinion. that We're talking about he's trying to define reality. He's talking physics. Physics. Life, this thing that everyone has that they're pursuing and trying to fill, cannot be filled with possessions. And he's saying it as if it is a fact of the natural world, of the natural order of things. This is important that we see it this way. It's a depiction of reality. Whatever we want from life cannot, will not be satisfied by possessions. He's saying that like, it's just true. It's just the way it is. I'm not, it's not my, my, my philosophy. It's not my part of my moral teaching. It's a, it's, it's, it's description of reality, physics. How's your life? I mean, you personally, how is your life? A full life, Jesus says, is not made up of possessions, things you own, hold, control, or have dominion over. How, about, how is your life? Is it full? And is it, are you trying to control or hold or possess things, or people even? We're, we're very capable of even taking human beings and turning them into objects. Uh, fundamentally, we have this, these sort of two ways that we look at the world. There's the, uh, uh, was it Berger that said, the, the sociologist that said, it's I and thou, there, there's two, there, or, you know, there's thou and it. Like we, we experience a thing as either a person or an object. And objects we, exist, we think exist to serve us and people exist outside of us, externalized by us. But it's very possible to take a person 
and turn it into an object. We do it all the time. So even that is something that can be controlled, possessed, owned. And those, whatever we try to possess cannot fill us, cannot make our life whole. It's a fool's bargain. This is, this is Jesus weighing in on a very old question, an old argument, which possibly begins with Aristotle. Aristotle wants to say that there are what he calls eudaimonia. There is what he calls eudaimonia, which is, a, which is a Greek concept, a Greek word, which actually does occur in the New Testament also. But of course, Aristotle is going to be thinking, writing, and dying 300 years before Jesus. And he wants to say that this, this Greek word, which essentially means happiness or welfare or human flourishing, he says that actually is the goal of life. Eudaimonia is this thing, this, this, this idea of like wholeness and flourishing that we're all chasing, we all want. It's, we, it's the idea of happiness that's bigger, that, that fills us, that we know, we know and hope would fill us. But he contrasts that. Uh, eudaimonia is the contrast to another stream of thought in his time called hedonism. And hedonism is all in this passage because what actually the farmer says is a hedonistic credo. He says, uh, um, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That is a hedonistic saying. Jesus is taking a piece of hedonism and throwing it into the farmer's thinking. He says, look, I have all this. Let me, let me put it aside so that I can take life easy. That's hedonism. Hedonism says that everything we do, the core good of what we do, is for pleasure. That really what, the only good in this world is pleasure. And to do everything you can, whenever you can, to satisfy your need for pleasure. And so we have this contrast. First, in Jesus, what really fills us? Is it, is it, is it a life uh, 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 of giving and with people? Or a life of greed and isolation? One is about pleasure. The other, one is about hedonism. The other is about eudaimonia. And he's saying, he's saying, Jesus is actually weighing in on this subject, saying, where is real flourishing for human beings? It's not in pleasure. It's not in the pursuit of pleasure. I'm a little embarrassed, but I saw this, um, I saw this documentary. Sometimes I flip through Netflix and look for documentaries. And I, I saw this documentary, I forget what it was called now, but it was about the... Um, the apparently famous Japanese heavy metal rock band called X-Japan. Has anyone ever heard of X-Japan? Me neither. Uh, apparently they're like, they've sold like 20, 21 million albums. Uh, they're like the most famous uh, Japanese band possibly. And they're just, they're huge in Japan. Um, <clears throat> and so they're, they're old now. And they're, this guy's sort of reflecting on his life and the life he chose to lead. And there's this one point in the documentary where he starts talking about, he's sort of being reflective and thinking about looking at the course of his life. And this is a guy that's lived for pleasure, chosen to live for pleasure. And he made this comment that's, that struck me. He said, um, whatever has gone wrong or whatever hasn't worked, at least I know that I have tried everything. That's what he said. 
At least I know I've tried everything. And that, there's a certain elegance to it. It sort of rings true. Like you, you sit back and you go, well, that, now that's a good life. You know, that's a life well lived. This guy, he didn't say no to himself on anything. That's, that's living. That's life. And that's hedonism. It's alive and well. The idea that, you know what, maybe at the end of your life, what you'll regret, and this is what we're told. This is what we're told. What you will regret is that you did not try certain things. That you wanted to do that thing, but you never did. And that's on your deathbed, you're going to regret. Listen very carefully. You can believe that that's true, but number one, hardly anyone feels that way at the end of their life. Just ask people who are dying. That's not how they feel. Number two, that's the opposite of what Jesus is teaching. So if that's your flow, you want to go like, I think Jesus is stupid. I think life is this other way. That's a choice you can make. I wouldn't recommend it. I think he knows a little bit more about life and its meaning. And what he's saying is that actually at the end of our lives, we don't say what we regret is not having tried something, not having given in to all of our pleasures, but actually quite the opposite. The pleasures that we gave into, because in the moment, in instant gratification, we thought it would give us some return. Those are the things we die regretting. And I couldn't help but think as I listened to this guy say, well, at least I've tried everything. I just, I, I was thinking to myself, no, you haven't. You actually didn't try the one thing that would have brought you life, which was saying no to yourself. The one thing you did not try was self-denial. The most important thing that a person can learn, you did not try. It's like saying, yeah, I've slept with every woman I've ever wanted to sleep with. I've lived. Is that true? Or is it that the one thing that would have brought you wholeness, which is 50 years of fidelity to the same woman, you'll never know that. You'll never know what that feels like. You'll never know the wonder of that, the intimacy, the closeness. That's what I want. I can see people chasing after sexual gratification and maybe for a moment, for a fleeting moment, it flies in and out of my mind thinking that would make me happy. That would give me some kind of pleasure in one kind of moment. But what pushes that out of my mind is the, this, this, this eudaimonia, this idea of like, wait, will that make me flourish or will that unravel everything that matters to me? And I don't, I don't, I don't want to fall for that trick because the truth is, you know, what I really want, you know, I'm, I'm 24, 24 years in with Monica and I want another 24. I want to be at, I want to be at, I want to be coming to the, to the edge of 50 years, having been faithful, never been with another woman except Monica. And then you guys come ask me how that is. And I'm glowing or something because I, 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 I've experienced something. This is the thing. There is no, there is no trade here. It's a fool's bargain. You think giving in to gratification is going to make you happy, and it will. It will make you happy for 20 seconds, and it will, and it will ruin the rest of your life. And there's only this kind of deep happiness, this deep flourishing, this deep fulfillment, that stuff, the stuff Jesus wants you to have, wants us to have, actually for eternity. That stuff only comes by saying no to those momentary pleasures. Greed is isolation, but it's also meaninglessness. It leads to isolation, but it also leads to a meaningless life. People that have a lot of things, they wake up one day and they go, what does all this mean? What have I pursued with my life? Neuroscience. The brain, 
It's an interesting thing. Probably in your lifetime, it has been a burgeoning uh, science to begin to understand how the brain works, where uh, the different sections of our brain are related to different kinds of behaviors. Uh, and one of the things that we've, we've sort of discovered um, is that there are two sources, two por- places in the brain, two centers in the brain that have to do with motivation and reward. In other words, why do I want to do something? Why do I want to go for something? And there's two parts of the brain. One is called the nucleus accumbens, and we'll just call that the pleasure center. This is what we've been talking about. This, this appeal to the hedonic in us. The pleasure center is a place of motivation. And the truth is, when we want sex or money or, or, or food or something like that, it's a very primitive part of our brain that lights up. So if, if you're under some uh, MRI or, and, and, and that motivation pops into our head, the nucleus, nucleus accumbens is the thing that lights up. That's the part of the brain. But there's another part of our brain that's similarly related to motivation or reward. It's called the posterior superior temporal sulcus. Now, let's not say that again. Uh, we'll call that the altruism center. So we have the pleasure center and the altruism center. Now, the fascinating thing about this is that there's never been any recorded time where they're both firing at the same time. They, can't, they, they don't work together. Either one is going or the other is going. And the altruism center is the thing, it's, it's more related to, to relationships and bonding. It's when we feel something towards each other. And we'll call it altruism because altruism is that feeling of like, I did this just to help you for no other reason than for you. And you know that's, that's a motivation for us. It's possible that we can be motivated by me, what I want, which is greed at its core. That's what greed is, me, 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 give, give me something. Or altruism, which is like, well, this will help you. This is good for you. And I'm not even thinking about myself. Those two parts of the brain cannot actually happen at the same time, function at the same time. One of my favorite examples of this, how this works, uh, in 19, I think it was 1993, uh, in Switzerland, the Swiss government was looking at uh, building four nuclear power plants. They wanted to create a different sort of uh, power source. It was cleaner, it would be cheaper, it better, whatever. So they wanted to create four nuclear power plants. The problem is nuclear power pr- plants create nuclear waste. So you had to figure out where are we going to put the plants and it's going to have some nuclear waste. Who wants that in their town? Do you see the problem? So now you have a beautiful Swiss place with no nuclear waste and let's create some nuclear waste. Who wants it? So they, they chose two sites, two possible sites, but they wanted to go in and ask the people who lived in those towns, how would you feel about us dumping some nuclear waste in your, in your city or your town? I mean, this is not a great question, right? So they wanted to ask them this. Interestingly enough, when asked, would you be willing to be the site of one of these nuclear power plants that would serve the whole country, provide power for the whole country, but it would pr- produce some nuclear waste? You know, 50.8% of, of the Swiss said, we'd be okay with that. 50, so just, just above half said, we'd do it. We'll do it. So this, this, this was a survey research done at the University of Zurich, and, and what they wanted to do was they tried to figure out, okay, how can we get that number higher? So 50% say, sure, you can use our town, you know, for the good of the country, Yeah. Go ahead, dump nuclear waste in our backyard. So they said, how do we get that number higher? So they proposed, what if we give 5,000 francs, about $2,600 to every single resident of that town every single year? So now you've been asked, imagine, you're being asked, surveyed, will you let us put this in your, your neighborhood? 
half of you say, okay. And when asked, okay, and we'll also give you $2,600 a year for life, as long as you live in this neighborhood, if you let us do this. Do you know that the total number went down to 24.6%? Which makes no sense, right? So will you let us put nuclear waste in your backyard for free? Okay. How about we'll also give you $2,600 a year? Well, then forget it. <laughs> so they, they, they doubled it. They said, what about $5,000 a year to see if that motivation, if that pleasure center could be triggered more, and that motivation could trigger, let's say, $5,000, only one person changed their mind. It stayed, it hovered right at about 24%. What, is that, what this reveals is that what, we're either motivated by altruism, the good of the country, the good of the people, or we're motivated by pleasure. And the truth is, if you're asking me, okay, wait, altruism, sure, you can put nuclear waste in our backyard. Money, pleasure center, new motivation, totally different calculation. You understand? Okay, what, what, no, okay. New calculation, $2,600. No, for $2,600, shut up, go home, go away. It's not worth $2,600, do you understand? If you're asking me to calculate in my pleasure center whether this is a good idea, shut up, leave. If it was $5,000, still shut up, still leave. I don't, my kids are going to get cancer and stuff. Go get out of here. This is th th what that reveals is that we have these two totally different ways of making decisions. This is exactly what Jesus is revealing. It's exactly what Aristotle was trying to get at. Pleasure says do whatever we feel is good. Meaning asks the question about time. What, makes you, what is good for you over time? What is good for others? And we know, we know, altruism is related also to bonding, to our relationships with each other. We like to do things for each other. It, 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 it gives us reward. And I think Jesus knew that because, again, this is physics. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, before any neuroscience exists, is saying, this is how your brains work, and you've got a choice to make. Which place will you live out of? Your desire, your primitive desire for instant pleasure and gratification, or something that builds meaning and community. The one will leave you totally alone and meaningless. The other will give you purpose and community for the rest of your life. You decide. This, incidentally, is why I would make an argument that we should divorce ourselves from our possessions entirely. That we should make, we should purpose in our hearts to look at every single thing that is within our stewardship and within our grasp. Our money, our cars, our houses, our clothes, our trinkets, our technology. To look at every single piece of, every single thing, every single possession that is within our reach, within the range of our kingdom. To look at each of those things as being meaningless. Because they are. And instead to be completely driven out of that other part of our brain that thinks, what helps people? This is when Jesus said, if someone wants to find their life, they must lose it. Lose it. And I'm not saying that because, ooh, what a challenge. What a challenging word for Jesus. No, this is, this is a roadmap to wholeness. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to challenge you or being harsh. I'm trying to help you. I'm Jesus is trying to say, do you want to be whole? joyful, walk, live, breathe, eat with a sense of purpose and meaning in your life, then don't do things that just satisfy your own personal pleasure center. That's death for you. That's emptiness for you. 
Live instead for something else. I mean, every single thing that we have control over. Think, how can this serve the kingdom? How can this serve other people? Ask the we question, not the I question. Don't talk to yourself, what should I do with my things? You should be like, what, 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 what use can all of my things be for the kingdom? And if you do that, it doesn't really matter what you come in contact with, what you come in control with. There was a time in my life where I was so afraid of materialism, so, so put off by it, that I thought, you know, if someone gives me something nice, I would go sell it or something because I can't be having things nice. But what will people think about me? You know, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm hardcore. I, I, I don't, I'm, I'm, and that's not, that's not what simplicity is. Simplicity is, simplicity is, is, is the, 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 the severing, the cutting of the ties of possessions to our hearts. They don't own us. They don't possess us. We possess them. And we could just as easily set them on fire or give them away or use them. It means nothing to us. Do you feel that way about your house, about your car, about your iPhone? Can you tomorrow take your iPhone? No, today. Can you walk outside, drop it in a, in a trash can if you felt like that would be beneficial to the kingdom? Would you do it? And then use an Android for the rest of your life. Could you do that? <laughs> You think I'm being funny, but if you cannot answer that question, I absolutely could do that. You have a problem. You have a problem. You really have a problem. All you have to do is go through your list of possessions and be like, which one could you let go of? And which one would you struggle? And I would just say, because I love you and because I want to see you thrive and flourish, I would just say, if you go down that list and you finally go, oh, not that one, burn it immediately. Throw it away. Give it away immediately until there is nothing left on your list that you possess that has any tie to your heart if you cannot do that with every single possession you have a problem and actually you're on the wrong road guys and don't say well yeah i feel that way about most of my things but not my you know whatever fill in the blank then that's your idol you remember Castaway? Is that what's, was that the movie called? Tom Hanks, Castaway. Yeah. He's he's you know the plane crashes and he's stuck on the island. Wilson, yeah, and he's he has he's alone. It's a story of isolation, profound isolation, and starvation and sunburn. Um, you remember he's totally alone and he 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 ha- there's a volleyball that he calls Wilson, because I guess it's a Wilson volleyball, and that becomes his best friend, this possession. Because Remember how he has a fight with Wilson? I don't have to sit here and talk to you. And he kicks Wilson's head out the cave. Some of you are like, you know, you, you were like 10 when that movie came out. So just, it's, on, it's probably on YouTube. Just watch it on YouTube, you know. That's how old it is. Um, and then he goes running out of the cave. Wilson, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'll never do it again. <laughs> and he makes up with Wilson. And then the worst scene, the saddest scene, he finally, he finally ventures out. Remember, he makes his little wooden raft, and he, gets his, he just thinks, I'm either going to live or die, but I'm going. And of course, he takes Wilson, because that's his best friend. It's a thing. It's a volleyball, but it's his best friend. It's a It's a, it's a picture of when you're totally alone and you have nothing but your possessions. And all of his possessions are reduced down to this one volleyball head. And he puts a little hair thing on it. Remember, he has like a little bamboo crown thing, yeah. And, and he falls asleep on his raft. He's way out at sea, falls asleep on his raft. And Wilson is sort of propped up on the edge of the, the boat, edge of the raft. 
and he wakes up and Wilson's not there. The head has fallen off. It's like in the water and he sees it. It's way out. Do you remember this? And he's screaming, Wilson, no, I'm so sorry, Wilson. And then, he, and then he starts to swim to Wilson, but he realizes that if he swims to there, he'll lose his life raft. And he has to make a choice, Wilson or the life raft, Wilson or the life raft. And he goes back to the life raft and he takes this little string that he's made and he tries to, he tries to but he goes just to the edge of that rope, just to the edge of that string, and he can't reach Wilson and he has to decide and he's drowning. And he has to decide, Wilson or life. And we do this. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a silly metaphor, but it's, it's what we do. We name our things. We personify them. We build friendships with our things. And we don't realize just how dark, devious, and pathetic it is. We don't realize it. We don't realize that actually there's such a profound deficiency in our relationships that we love our iPad and we love our flat screen TV and we love our PlayStation and we love, we, love, we love our car. And what it reveals is that we have such a profound deficit of human love. Again, I don't know that I want to plead with you this morning to be like, you know, you know stop being materialistic. I want to plead with you to love people. To be in human relationships to where you look at Wilson and you think, well, it's a volleyball. It's used for volleyball. That's it. It's not my friend. We're crazy. We're, it's, it's a pathology. I think human history would judge, our, would judge our time in which we live and would see a pathology. Wilson cannot, will not ever love you back. He will never speak back to you. Wilson did not care when he was floating off. <laughs> as powerful as that scene is, because you want him to get Wilson. You're like, oh, that's if I get him. That's his only friend. <laughs> you want him to have Wilson because you too think Wilson is a person, a thing, but he isn't. Wilson didn't care. He never cared. He never nurtured him. He was never there for him. He never did anything for him. This is Psalm 115. We make our idols and we give them mouths, but they cannot speak. We give them ears, but they cannot hear. We give them hands, but they cannot save. And those that make them become like them, lifeless, speechless, deaf, powerless. We make our own idols. We build our friendships with them. We worship them. And they are our undoing. This is the folly of the text. This is what makes this man a fool. Because he's made friends with his things. It's all he has. It's all he has. This is why the story is a response to selfishness presenting as isolation. The brother is alone. The farmer is alone. The greedy person is alone. He does not have family. He does not have community or God. You will, listen, I'm going I'm to tell you right now, give away as much of your money and things as you possibly can. Today, tomorrow, and for the rest of your life, do it. Work on it. However much you currently give away in your life, give more. 
but not because we need money or because it's a more Christian thing to do to give 12% of the graduated tithe or anything like that. Forget all of that. Exclude all of that. You, know, you want to know the number one reason why you should be generous with your money? So you don't die alone. Do it for yourself, if for no one else. Do it because you know this road of keeping more for me only hurts me. What starts as Wilson for you becomes Baal, Asherah. It becomes an alternative religion. The last thing that this text is about is about mortality. It's about dying without God. The fool, the psalmist said, says in his heart, there is no God. The fool, the biblical fool, and there's two nuances here for the word fool. This guy is called a fool. A fool comes in two packages. One is the fool's bargain. He makes a trade which only a fool would make. I'll give you an example. You're really hungry. Crucible's over. You walk outside. Somebody has a McDonald's cheeseburger, and man, it looks good. And you're hungry. And did I die? Oh, I want that. I want that McDonald's cheeseburger. And so you say to them, can I get that cheeseburger? Can you have it? And they look at it and they look at you and they look at it and they look at you and they say, I'll tell you what, I'll give it to you if you sign over the title to your car right now. And then you do it. And you eat this. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. It's so worth it. It's so worth it. My precious. It's so worth it. How long does that last? I mean, how long does enjoying a McDonald's cheeseburger last? I mean, as soon as it's past your taste buds, you regret it. Am I right? It's so good. It's so good. And then it's so not good immediately. That's a fool's bargain. That's a fool's bargain. You walk away from that going, what have I done? And the other guy's like, yeah, man, yeah. And he tells his friends, I got a car for a cheeseburger. How dumb is that guy? <laughs> it's a story he tells for the rest of his life to his children and everything. <laughs> That's what's called a fool's bargain. The second nuance of being a fool is the one who lives as if there is no God. Let's call it practical atheism. And there are Christians that are practical atheists. People who believe in Jesus, believe in God, believe that he's there, but don't live as if he's there in your life. This is what the farmer does. He doesn't consult God. He doesn't imagine God to exist at all. He doesn't think about eternity. He doesn't think about judgment. He doesn't even care. Whether he believes in God or not is irrelevant because he lives as if there is no God. This is what a fool does. This is the, the foolish way in the wrong sense of what the series is about. The foolish life is a life that acts as if God is not there. Don't do that. He's there. He's there. He's with you. Going right back to where we started, as if he were there in your life, how would it change? How would you change? He is there. He's as present as that thought experiment. He's present now. He'll be present when we leave. He's present. And so we give, we love, and we see the eternal in the temporal. I'm not as young as I once was. I'm going to close here. 
I'm not as young as I once was, I'm not as handsome. It's pretty much all downhill from here. <laughs> Frederick Buechner says, there's a time in your life where you are more lovely than you will ever be. Uh, and then it goes. <laughs> For some of you, that is yet to come. For some of you, it is behind you. <laughs> but it's there, and it, you will pass it at some point. I was, at, I was, I was in Birmingham recently, and we were, we were trying to kind of design this, this ministry space for the movement there, and I, I really wanted a, a soda, so there was a, there was a subway right next door, so I walked into the subway, and there was no one there but this one, one woman who was working behind the counter, and so I walked in, and she said, the first thing she said to me as I walked in, she said, ooh, you look, you look like somebody who's famous. You look like somebody who's famous. That's what she said. And so I said, I feel good about myself. You know, I'm kind of like, you know, I get that a lot or whatever. That's what I'm thinking. And so I say, because, you know, I, I don't know, it's a, she's flirting with me. I'm going to flirt back. So I say, I say, you know, somebody, somebody handsome, you know, famous and handsome. And she says, no, that's not, no. <laughs> not, not necessarily handsome, just famous. I was like, get my drink. <laughs> Have a nice day. <laughs> this, text, this text is a reality check. You know, you're, we're, we're all going to die. We're all going to get old and die. It's about mortality. One day your life will be required back from you. You'll, you'll have to trade it in. You'll have to turn it in. This life. And you'll turn it in, you'll trade it in, this temporary life, this 70-year internship, you will trade it in for an eternal life. You will trade it in for something that never ends. Ask yourself how you use this life if you are wise, if you waste it. If in the end your eternal life is horrid because you enjoyed this short mist, this vapor. This text is about isolation, it's about meaning, but it's also about mortality. We are eternal beings, you and I. We all die, and you cannot take it with you. Nothing that you amass, nothing that you accumulate, no money that you save, no things that you possess can you take with you. You, you, will, you will enter into eternity completely naked and left only clothed either by your own righteousness or by the righteousness of Christ Jesus. And that is as real and as important as anything else in this text. What will it be for you? In the end, our inheritance is always split between the brothers. The living give up. The living take what the dead give up. I like what Augustine said of this text. Augustine said, the best, the best storehouse would have been the bellies of the poor. The best place to store our treasures, the best place for the farmer to store his treasures would have been the bellies of the poor because that would have lasted forever for him. This is the heart of God. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. What is the incarnation? What is it? If not God, who has all things, giving that up, to become small and poor for you. What is the model for greatness, for life itself, for beauty, for wholeness, for holiness, for excellence, for purity, for perfection, for completeness? What is that model if not a giving up, a laying down? 
People are fond of Jesus. They think he's great. But nobody really wants to live the way he lived. And what that means is to live ready to die, to live a life that moves toward death, letting go, giving away, losing something, not gaining something, not pursuing gain or accumulation, but actually pursuing what it means to let go. Ask yourself if you're growing spiritually. Ask yourself if you're becoming more like him. And you can answer that question by how comfortable you are with giving away the things of your life. Greatness, friends, is in the giving. Giving away of our best things. Burning our possessions on the altar fire of the love of God. I was in Colombia recently and um, speaking at this conference. And I've, I've, I've probably been translated, preaching and translated, I don't know, a couple dozen times in my life. And I've never had what's called a simultaneous translator. This was the first time. I didn't know such a thing existed. Do you know there's such a thing? Okay, someone did. I didn't. So you, 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 I'm talking just as fast as I'm talking now, but someone is in the back translating me simultaneously into a microphone which goes into people's ears. So what they're hearing is this translation, but it's happening real time. I don't have to wait. You know, normally, at least in my experience, I say a thing, you wait, you let the person hear it, translate it, say it, wait, go back, hear, translate. It's very stilted. And uh, this guy, Julio, became like, I don't know, I fell in love with this guy. This <laughs> beautiful, bald-headed Colombian man. He was standing in the back, and as I was preaching, he, was, he, just, it would be, he was a mirror of me. And he, I don't know, something magical, something spiritual, some, something happened. I, I went to him and I said, what is going on between you and me? Uh, is it a, is it a, it, does this happen a lot? He's like, it does. I said, is this a gift? He said, it's a gift. Yes, it's a gift. Every time I would say something, he, he didn't just say it, he felt it. He's like, he's like, Brian, for me, it's as if I'm the one preaching. I'm the one. It flows through me. In fact, at the end of one of my first talks, I did a, several, at the end of one of my first talks, he, he stopped translating, couldn't translate because he was crying. He was so moved by our sermon, our words. an extraordinary experience. It was like he, he moved with me, his, his hands, his, his, his face, his gestures. No one's watching him but me. And yet he was, we were synced somehow. I cry, he cry. I get excited, he gets excited. Somehow, miraculously, he took my heart. I want to be, I want to live a life where I am the simultaneous translator of the heart and love of God to the world. Don't you? To see him there dying on a cross and to somehow learn to die in our own lives. To see him exulting at the right hand of God and somehow to feel exalted with him to see him love, to forgive, and to somehow forgive. To see him heal, and to somehow heal. To put our eyes directly on him, and to translate 
from his heart to our heart to the world that cannot understand him yet. This is what I think it means to be rich toward God, to be extravagant toward God, opulent, outrageous, sparing nothing, throwing. Take all your possessions, take all of your skill, take all of the things that you think matter in this life and throw them at God, throw them at the things of God. Be opulent, be luxurious, be ridiculous. Waste your life on God. And one day you'll stand before him and you will feel whole and completely filled. Just bow your heads as we come to the table. And I just want you to do a moment of self-examination. It's right that when we come to this table, always to begin with examination. Look at your own heart, guys. Beloved, look at your own heart. Is there some place, is there something that is Wilson for you? You know, maybe even now, it's just right there in the forefront of your mind. Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a, a career path. Maybe it's a, a job. Maybe it is just a thing. Maybe you can hear God whisper in your ear this morning, it's time to use an Android phone. It's, it's what he's saying to you, I think. Probably not, but it's possible. The night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which I break for you. And after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup, it is a new covenant. A promise I make with my blood. for the forgiveness of your sin and so drink it to remember me. Guys, I want you to be free uh, today. And as you come to this table, I, I don't think you're supposed to feel condemnation, but I do think repentance could lead to freedom today. I do think if there's something that you can lay down as you take up these elements, maybe once and for all just die just die to the desire to have the best things or the newest things or riches or wealth or anything that those things are supposed to buy just lay it down and instead take up this infinite gift of the way of Jesus this is his body and blood given for you